0: And I said, "Well, to now support my new lifestyle and to amplify it to you know mega status, I'm going to become an angel investor. I'm going to start and fund all these different businesses simultaneously by investing in them, and that will be the game changer." It wasn't.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever: stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to tools you need to create, grow, and protect your wealth. Go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com right now to claim your spot. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Mike Michalowicz. Mike, are you ready to join the mission? I'm all on board. You are one of the most qualified people to join this mission. I want to introduce you to the audience. Mike leads 2 multi-million dollar ventures as he tests his latest business research for his books. He is a popular main stage keynote speaker on innovative entrepreneurial topics and is the author of eight books, including Profit First and Clockwork, both which are on my desk right now, which have transformed over 700,000 businesses. Mike, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world.
0: Well, I think what I can do, what I have a natural orientation toward is simplifying complex ideas. And I think part of it is because I can't absorb complex ideas. I'm fascinated by them, but I can't understand them. It's just too much information bouncing around my mind. So I, I take ideas that I think are important, but are complex, and try to boil it down to the raw essence of effectiveness. So simple that anyone, including myself, can do it. And uh, I do this for business principles. so I'm an author of my books,
1: and it's always about how do I simplify the entrepreneurial journey? Mm. I can imagine when you were in school and a teacher says, "Why don't you understand this right and yeah. then why, you, why are you drawing Mike Yeah pay attention exactly too much, too much information and then you see the teacher goes and talks to the other teacher, "Oh, I feel sorry for him. He can't pay attention." And in, never fact, in fact, that weakness that they may have said or thought actually was a strength because then you really had to, you had to simplify things yourself to understand them. And that brings tremendous value to other people, you know, so that that's just a great story. And for the listeners and the viewers out there, you know, if you're getting hammered or your child's getting hammered on some weakness, hone in on how that weakness can become a strength.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because they're they're not, painting in the lines or coloring in the lines. They have to find an alternative and that alternative breaks rules, which in many cases is the best thing you can do.
1: That's fantastic. And um, just before we get into the, the, the big question of the day, I'd like to talk about clockwork just briefly because I find it really fascinating. I think it's valuable for, for the listeners, particularly whether you got a small business, medium sized business, maybe you could just give a little brief on that. We'll have links in the show notes. So people will go and get it. I enjoy the Audible from Amazon, but uh, maybe you can just tell us who is that book for, what pain are they in right now, and what will they get from it?
0: It's any business owner specifically who's in the hustle and grind mode that they have become the linchpin for the business, which means therefore they can't leave the business because then the business collapses. So anyone where there's this dependency on the owner to be the producer or to be the sales person where there's a great dependency on the owner. The subtitle of of Clockwork is design your business to run itself. And the idea is is that we're not looking to overnight make the businesses run on a Mac because that's impossible. It's not a flip of the switch. There is this throttle where we have to start extracting the owner from the business, but building new competencies where they truly delegate and don't abdicate and don't micromanage, but truly delegate how to capture systems, how to build redundancy for your colleagues even small business, you, know, you have two or three people there. If one person leaves, that's one quarter of your business walking out the door. How do we have redundancy in place? And ultimately, what Clockwork gets to is the ultimate asset test is if I can get a business owner, that business owner can leave the business for four consecutive weeks without any physical or digital connection, and the business can sustain or grow, then the business theoretically can go into perpetuity because most businesses are in a monthly cycle are Doing mm-hmm. different elements, but every month it kind of repeats for most businesses. So, the goal is to get the business owner on a four week vacation. And what I share is this is not about the owner getting a vacation, it's nice, but it's about the business getting a vacation from the owner. That's the
1: <laughs> that reminds me of what's his name, the dog whisperer, Cesar Millan. Oh, yes, yeah, Caesar Milan. Yeah, and you know inevitably in every single time he gets into a situation of a misbehaving dog it's actually a misbehaving owner right 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 and and most
0: businesses that are struggling is an owner struggling to extract themselves from the business and sadly there's a lot of pundits that promote hustle and grind workaholism like that's a good thing it's it's the worst thing and and i, I write about the statistics in the book one of the, I think the interesting ones is only 3% of the population builds and runs a successfully sustainable business. 14% of people try 3% actually pull it off. And that means 97% of the population is looking for a good job with a good company. Therefore, the number one job of an entrepreneur is not to do the job, but to create jobs for others. That's the essence of a clockwork.
1: That's business. beautiful. Yeah. I mean that's Thank really a, that helps you know really clarify, and I would think that that three percent is even probably a bit high. It, it may depends be, on, right? Yeah, yeah. It may be because what what I always say is that you know you don't have a real business until you're paying a dividend. Dude, amen
0: to that. Like I don't hear people say it often, but that's the absolute truth. Most people have a glorified job; they're paying themselves a inferior salary compared to what they should be getting and there is no dividend, or they say they're taking a dividend, a profit distribution, but really it's compensation for their salary because it wasn't appropriate in the first place. The true definition of a dividend is where you take a normalized salary for the work you're doing, and many business owners are working at a very high level, so they, they should have pretty high salaries for the work they do. And above and beyond that, there is a dividend that the company distributes to the shareholder, not for a reward for the work you've done, but the fact that you've started and launched a business and you're contributing to the global economy.
1: Yeah, so that's that's really what it's all about. And I was yeah. a financial analyst in the stock market all my life. So all I did was look at businesses that had dividends. And then you go into the small business world and you go, "Wait a minute. Where's the dividends?
0: Where is it?" There's none. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank yeah, God. So, I'm I, trying to drill this home over and over day in and day out. And people are like, yeah. "No, I just try to make money." I'm like, "No, Ooh, dividends. Shares. Dividends
1: is what, yeah." There's and I'm the other thing is that, you know, I do a lot of work on valuation. And so I'm looking at that final point and people ask me a question, how do I increase the value of my exit of my business? And I said, very simple. I'll tell you what you can do right now. And they say, yeah, tell me, cause I'll do it tomorrow. And I said, double your salary. That's the Be, truth. Because the management team, probably the management team and definitely the owner, are underpaying themselves. And in fact, they sure. don't have a profit and they don't have a dividend. And therefore, what happens is that when a buyer comes in and said looks at it, they say, Okay, so let's just imagine that you live this business. Let's say the management team leaves this business and I have to replace you out at market prices yeah. to get a new management team, qualified, yeah. good people to do exactly what you guys have been doing. I'm going to have to pay market prices. And all of a sudden, yeah. the prof, what you think is a profitable business is actually a loss-making business. This, oh, my gosh. I love this. Yeah. 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 It's the absolute truth. Everything you're sharing is absolutely true. Well, for the, for the listeners out there, grab the books you know, listen to the audio books, read the books. There's so much value there, so much value there. And like Mike was explaining to me previously before we turned on the recorder, part of what he tries to do is, and this is a good lesson for all of us, deliver value right up front, immediately and deliver also your uniqueness. And I think that's where the way you shuffle around a profit and loss statement is fantastic. You know, Mm, putting that profit first is, you know, such a great, unique way of doing it and you hit the reader right up front with it. And so for everybody out there, grab the books, I'll have links in the show notes and get the benefit and join the more than 700,000 businesses that he's helped transform. Yeah. And folks in Thailand too. We got many clients out in Thailand. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, we want, I want to talk more about that later because I think you got yeah. a lot of value to bring here. So, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: Yeah. So of course it was the idea of the century. This is the million dollar idea to give context. I had, I started my first company on college. It was an IT services sold it in a private equity transaction, started another business. It was a data forensics computer crime investigation business. We got the Enron trial. Now to give context, we weren't the only investigators in the Enron trial and we were not prosecution. That's the FBI, the CIA, ATF, or all these different organizations. We were doing defense analysis. So Kenneth Lay, Andrew Fastow, I can't remember all the names, they were our clients. Yeah. And so it puts us on the map right away. That business grew, bootstrapped very rapidly. We were acquired by a Fortune 500 two and a half years after inception, called Robert Half International acquired us. I become a self-made millionaire in my early 30s. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know everything about entrepreneurship. My (laughs) ego exploded. I'm ashamed of it now. And I said, well, to now support my new lifestyle and to amplify it to mega status, I'm going to become an angel investor. I'm going to start and fund all these different businesses simultaneously by investing in them. And that will be the game changer. It wasn't (laughs) not to, you know, break the the story too early, but it wasn't, I was a total calamity. It was a calamity,
1: but I thought it would be the best thing I've ever done. Mm. And it's interesting. I'm just curious, like, when did you realize like, well, this wasn't a good idea? Like in the beginning, I mean, it sounds like you're the man. You know, you're going to, oh, yeah, yeah. you understand. I would things. say
0: six months in, but I had this, I don't know if it's called a confirmation bias or loss aversion, whatever, like, you know, the, the, maybe it's called the momentum effect. I don't know. I was just in it. It was not working. So then I started double downing on it to save it. It's like, it's like that person who buys stock and says, this is, you know, this is going to increase and it devalues. And they say, well, now I should buy more because it's going to go up. And then when it collapses more, they say, I got to buy more. And then it's out of business and mm-hmm. they lose everything. I was doing the exact same behavior. And it's funny, you know, I've studied this stuff. I've observed it in others, and I couldn't see it in myself. But that's what I was doing.
1: And can you remember a specific day that you thought, you know, your kind of worst day or a time Uh, your your wife or girlfriend at the time that you were like, uh, yeah. Oh,
0: I I remember it vividly. I've actually written about it. The worst day was a year and a half after I started this. So there was two things going on. I was... I called it investing. It was arbitrary spending money. These were not complimentary companies. I had a jewelry manufacturer, food distribution, kind of like a blue apron, all these different things. They didn't compliment. So I was like all over the place, all startups too. So they didn't have any traction. I get a call from my accountant. I know the exact day. It was February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, 2008. And his name is Keith. He calls and he says, I can't believe I'm going to say this to you, but you got to declare bankruptcy. Because you've evaporated everything. And here's the crazy part, Andrew. I saw in my bank accounts, the money going away. Like Mm. I knew it was going away. So logically I saw it emotionally. I wasn't ready to accept it. Like I thought I'm just one good move away. The big client's going to come. I was not going to cut my losses. Just kept going, going. And then that's the day. And Mm. uh, he said, you got to, you got to declare bankruptcy. I didn't. He gave me option two. He said, liquidate remaining assets. They'll cover your tax bill, but then you're done. Like you got, you're just done. Fold it up. And we did, we lost our house. We went to a, not even a rental. We had friends that were moving for a sabbatical for a year and a half. They wanted house sitters. I'm the house sitter now. They saved us for, they gave us a roof over our head. I, um, we lost our cars and, and stuff like that. But my daughter, and this is a painful thing. My daughter, as I was telling her and my three children, my wife, she was nine years old. She ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And she ran to me and she goes, daddy, I know you can't provide for us, but I'll start doing it. And it was so embarrassing and humbling. And I was proud of her. Yeah. Started drinking a lot after that. It wasn't like next morning I woke up and said, I got to fix this. I'm like, where's the booze? So I self-medicated. I uh, like an insomnia. I couldn't work. I was depressed severely. But that was the moment, the piggy bank. I'll never forget the piggy bank.
1: Yeah. I remember that story and the piggy bank, you know, I mean, yeah, I was almost in tears when I heard that. So, you know that's, you know, that's a bottom. And my bottom actually involved alcohol and drugs myself. It wasn't a business bottom, but it was a personal bottom. And for those people who are struggling with that, you know, there are answers, you know, sometimes it's a temporary thing and you can get over it, but if you get caught into it with drugs or alcohol, make sure you reach out to some 12 step Mm -hmm. programs because there's a lot of great stuff Mm -hmm. out there. So let's summarize quickly. What lessons did you learn?
0: Well, first of all, I learned uh, stay in my lane. I went into the stuff where I had no experience, and it's interesting. The areas I have experience, I also realize I have maybe one percent of the potential knowledge there. The areas I have no experience, I have zero knowledge, and just having one percent knowledge—I mean, a real one percent, not a artificial one—does give you start giving you an advantage over alternatives. So stay in my lane. I'm a small business guy. I'm not an investor in that sense. Mm. I don't invest well in other people, but I do know how to grow my own businesses. So. Damn it, I'm doing that. And, and today now I actually have six businesses where I'm either a direct shareholder or basically a, a phantom equity stake. Um, mm. I have control over the businesses so I can understand that. The second thing is, you know, see how the greater picture works together. Like Everything needs to work together as gears. Maybe they were gears, but they, they weren't even touching each other. So one couldn't move the other. Mm. Today, like when I write a book, I'm like, oh, how can the sales of a book promote lead flow that could support a business. And how could that business bring in consulting revenue and support another book sale? And how can I get these gears meshing together? It ain't perfect, but it's way better. And it becomes, it's kind of, um, biosphere of business life. Yeah. And the second thing is be humble, but not artificially humble. Like, and I'm not even saying externally, I'm not saying like, Oh, I'm a nice guy. Everything's cool. Like, you know, not that that's great. I'm saying like, realize I'm probably the idiot in the room and keep realizing that. So I don't think I'm so smart. The mm-hmm. second I have that hubris and think I know something, oh my God, that's the minute I'm going to start screwing things up. Yeah. So that self-awareness that I'm kind of an idiot and keeping myself humbled like that opens my eyes and it opens my ears to listen a lot more.
1: Yeah, humility. And maybe I'll share a couple of quick takeaways. I mean, the first thing is that if you, are not humble in the face of the financial markets. And when Mr. Economics comes knocking on your door, he will make you humble. So why not start today on your own? That's the first thing I take away. I mean, the other thing is, I always remember this deal that I helped a company, a friend friend of mine had a company here in Thailand and we sold that company to Microsoft. And my job was to basically negotiate the price, do the valuation and close the transaction. And when that happened, you know, all of the owners, you know, got money and the banker talked to everybody. And and I just told the banker, I said, just do me a favor. He says like, yeah, what can I do? And I said, never call me. And my reasoning was like, I didn't want to get advice from this guy who was kind of more of a salesman than a banker. Mm. And the problem that I saw, and I know it's the case, is that All of these guys, as well as many of other owners out there that sell their businesses and they land on a big pile of money, the first thing they do is think they're in the big leagues and they go out in the market. They either go out in the (laughs) private market and start investing in private companies, Uh or they go out in the public market and think that they're a hero in the stock market. So I would like to save all of those people who are ready now to sell their businesses or will sell their businesses in the future. I'll just give you one piece of advice that could save you a million dollars. When you get your gains, put it in the bank, put a portion of it in an ETF that owns every stock, maybe in the world, Yeah, yeah exactly. and just take a year to think before you go rushing into being so a hero. So anyway. smart. There so you go. Smart. I took about two
0: hours, right? And then into the market and go, I'm the genius in the room.
1: Yeah. And that's the problem is you come out of a business with a lot of confidence when you sell it. And so you carry that confidence into other areas yeah. and you may not you know, have it. So based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, Let's imagine now that person like yourself that's come out of a deal, what one action would you recommend they take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: I guess the action I would take is ask myself, am I at a mastery level in this space? And if I'm not, it's probably premature to take an action. Mm -hmm. When looking back at angel investing, I had no experience. I didn't even really know what the term meant. I just jumped into it. I was amateur minus one, mm. now when I go into something, I say, do I really a master understanding? Which by the way, still to me is about 1% knowledge. Because mastery is also the understanding that you don't know as much as you could know and you keep acquiring more and more and more knowledge. Yep. So get to that mastery level. Now, some people may define that mastery as 99% knowledge. I just arbitrarily pick that 1% because I think there's so much more in front of me. But if mm. I don't know the space inside and out, it's probably not something I want to do. As an example, someone's like, oh, I'll get real estate. There's so much money in real estate. I really don't have an interest. I'm doing some research and stuff. I, I'm just, I'm amateur minus still. No way. Not yeah. for me. Yeah. Not yet.
1: Great advice. What's a resource that you recommend maybe out of all of the things that you've done, whether it's a website or whether it's books or anything else, what's the resource you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Oh,
0: yeah. For my resources, yep. there's a website. It's real simple to remember. It's Mike Motorbike, like a motorcycle. I used to have, I do, and I still do, my name, Mike It's no one can spell it. Mike Motorbike is a nickname I had in grade school. It's the only G-rated nickname I had in grade school. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Motorbike, if you go there, all my books are there. You can get free chapter downloads. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal, and I mm-hmm. selected my 10 best articles, best performing articles, and have them now as PDFs. At mikemotorbike.com
1: perfect and we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can check it out i'm already looking at it right now last question what's your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: my number one goal for next 12 months is to be of extraordinary service to small businesses in the process of eradicating entrepreneurial poverty i can't give the number but i do know the ultimate number there's 320 million small businesses globally i gotta scratch the service and on each one of those Entrepreneurial poverty is where we have this vision of wealth, freedom, and so forth, but the reality of struggle, you know, living check to check, I want to close that gap. And this that's been my goal every year. That's my goal this year. I actually have it written down right there, eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. That's number one. And I don't know what the number is going to be, but before I leave this planet, I want to have served or at least have the mechanisms in place to serve 320 million small businesses.
1: That's amazing. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to my worstinvestmentever.com right now. As we conclude, Mike, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I hope
0: no one else needs to make the worst investment ever, but if you do, make it your best
1: lesson ever. Amen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person, that's Mike here, to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.